Thank you, Danny. It's fantastic to be here. I love being in the States and I've uh, got such good friends here and got friends who've known for years and really love and it's brilliant to meet new people and I uh, just feel immediately that sense of connection, just talking to Chad from Arkansas this morning, thinking, hey, this is a good guy, Ben from Missouri, others I've met the last couple of days, thinking these are good guys, we can do stuff together. So it's a real privilege and a joy to be here. I won't do more of a kind of a welcome and explanation of who I am, because Donnie's already used up most of my time. Um, <laughs> and we are going to shift a gear from kind of soul-searching to something which is probably a bit more in the mind. I'm going to move pretty fast, I've got a funny British accent. Um, so I hope you can keep up. If it's a disaster, it's only 35 minutes, and then I'm going back to the UK, and so you can forget all about it. Uh, but we'll just, we'll just see who we, how we go. So I've been asked today to speak about leadership in the midst of seismic ethical shifts. And the shifts ethically are huge. They're seismic, and we very quickly go to the topical issues, particularly the sexuality issue. Um, but the Bigger shifts, I would argue, actually happened 50 years ago. The really significant shifts in terms of stuff happening was the introduction of the pill in 1960 and the introduction of no-fault divorce in 1970. Ronald Reagan, governor of California, introducing no-fault divorce. Those two things are the really big shifts which you can trace all the other sexuality stuff back to in, in many ways. And uh, rather than plunging into the issues, in the, next, in the breakout session I'm going to be talking about LGBT stuff and getting into more of the issues, what I want to do in this session is to think more about how we got to where we got to, how we got to the place we got to in the 60s and the 70s, which now gets us to where we are uh, in the, whatever we are, we call this decade of the, of the 21st century, and think about the implications of that for our leadership. And I'm going to be throwing out more questions than I'm giving answers. So I'm sorry about that. Next session breakout, hopefully some more answers, but this session it's going to be more questions. So first question for you, what do you think... And why do you think it? What did your parents teach you? What did your school teach you? What more broadly has culture taught you? We can be so blind to the water in which we swim culturally. There are things which are very normal for you here in the, in, in the States, which, coming from a European perspective, just seem completely weird. And there'd be stuff for you guys, you came to the UK or to Europe, which would equally look bizarre, but it's because our cultures, although often tracking together, there's some very distinctive things and very different things. Some of the guys were uh, coming up here the other day and, and uh, a girl on a motorbike with a crop top pulled up next with a, with a, a gun tucked into her jeans. That doesn't happen in Paul. It's, it's a different... Um, yeah, why not? It's a different, a, different, a different culture. What assumptions do you have? It's very difficult to know what assumptions you have because you just assume them. And there's stuff we just assume because it's the culture that we swim in. And is there anything which is actually distinctively Christian? Christian about your thought? Let me give you an example. Say a couple come to your church who wants to get married. And you find out as you're talking to them that they've both been married before. And actually they had a, an affair. And as a consequence of that affair, they both got divorced and left their partners and are now together. And at the time when they had the affair and left their spouses, she was a Christian and he wasn't. And then subsequently, since they got divorced from their partners, he has become a Christian. And now the both of them have come to your church together and they want to get married. What do you do? Why do you do it? What are the cultural assumptions about what you should do? What are the biblical expectations of what you should do? Is there a clash between those two things. Now, if we're going to have Christian ethics, which is distinctively Christian, we need to think about our pastoring, our counselling, 
which is an element of our leadership. And it's very easy for us just to default what is reflective of the culture. It's very easy for us to default to what is common sense, what just seems to make sense. And it's very easy for us to default to what we think the person we're leading, counselling, pastoring is able to hear and not push beyond to actually what they need to hear. Let me give you an example. Uh, Graham Norton, who who's, um, has the biggest talk show in the UK, he's a gay guy, no particular religious belief, biggest talk show, very funny guy, comedian. He also has a, a, an advice column in one of the national papers, and I like to read his advice because it's brilliant. Let me give you a, an example of a letter that he received and the answer that he gave and see how you might answer this differently as a Christian. Dear Graham, our mother died following a short illness. Before she died, she had tried to make preparations part of which involved cashing out her pension, and she instructed our father that the money was to be used for the education of her grandchildren. Before she died, our father suffered a stroke and was diagnosed with dementia. His short-term memory has been affected, as has his interest in life. He has a good pension, owns a large house, and is now sitting upon a very sizable sum of our mother's money. He refuses to discuss carrying out our mother's last wish and gets into a rage when the subject is mentioned. He also refuses to plan for the future or do any inheritance tax planning. We know we shouldn't allow money to affect us in this way, but both sides of the family are extremely angry about this. We feel let down and disappointed that he is not interested in investing in his grandchildren's future. He never gets in touch, and it's all we can do to call him. We can clearly see our inheritance evaporating in care home fees and inheritance tax. Should we keep trying to engage him or just give up and leave him to himself, accepting that we mean nothing to him anymore? How do you respond? Dear Richard, consider my gobsmacked. Your mother dies suddenly and your father is recovering from a stroke after being diagnosed with dementia and you want to talk to me about school fees. If I find your concerns incomprehensible, imagine how your dad feels. He has lost his wife, his body is a stranger, he feels his mind slipping away. I really think he has enough on his plate without worrying about the fact that you were too thick to realise you might have to pick up the tab for your kids yourself. The bottom line is you are entitled to nothing. Your parents gave you life and brought you up. The rest is down to you. If your father decides to leave everything to a local cattery, then so be it. <laughs> if waiting for your parents to die is your idea of a get-rich-quick scheme, then I feel very sorry for you. This is your only surviving parent, and I really don't think it is a case of you meaning nothing to him anymore. This is an old man mourning his wife and coming to terms with the heartbreaking realisation that all he means to his children is school fees and a new bathroom. In the end, the only lasting legacy your father will leave is you. Make him proud and pass those values onto your children. This was money you never had, so I suggest you kiss it goodbye and focus on what you do have. Now, I read that as I often read Graham Norton's answers, and I think that is fantastic pastoral advice. If somebody came into my office with that question and I gave them advice that good, I'd go home feeling pretty good about myself that day. <laughs> but it's easy for us to stop there. And that doesn't go nearly far enough. As a Christian, what should we say? We might want to start talking about the reality of sin, about how that means that things are broken. Actually, the reason why your dad is sick and that death is the most powerful agent on earth is because 
men and women rebelled against God and that caused everything to get broken. And actually what your experience, your broken relationship with your dad is a consequence of your sin, is a consequence of your personal brokenness. We might then want to start talking about the offer of redemption in Christ, that Jesus has started to put all that stuff into reverse and there's a hope of redemption that one day your dad could be redeemed, you can be redeemed and we can have a confidence about that because Christ is raised from the dead. And if Christ is raised from the dead, we have the hope of resurrection life, that redemption isn't just a nice theological term, it's real and solid and tangible and that has to affect how we live as disciples of Jesus now because how we live matters now because we're going to live with Christ forever and so how you think about money and how you think about your dad and how you think about relationships all counts we might want to talk about some of that stuff but it's easy just to give the answer that Graham Norton did and if we did it as well as he did we'd feel pretty good about ourselves let me give you a wider historical Context. You know, when we come to questions about how we lead in challenging ethical situations, we're not coming fresh to the table. For 2,000 years, Christians have been talking, debating, thinking about these issues. And, of course, in the early centuries of the church, the seismic ethical shift was Christianity. That was the seismic ethical shift. The Roman world, the Greek world, didn't think as Christians think. Their values, their virtues are very different from Christian ones, from things that we take for granted and assume in Western culture. And so Christianity was a seismic ethical shift. How in that context should Christians think? How should Christians lead? Let me introduce you to two dudes, Clement of Alexandria and Tertullian, both in the second century. Clement lived in Alexandria, North Africa, a wealthy sophisticated city, a city a bit like London or New York. And in a culture like that, the question is, does Christianity make sense? Does Christianity make sense in a wealthy, sophisticated place? And there was a contemporary of Clement, a guy called Celsus, who said that Christianity was only fit for slaves and women and children. Men, rational, intelligent, freeborn men, would not be drawn towards Christianity because it didn't make philosophical sense. It didn't make sense in a wealthy and a sophisticated place like Alexandria. And that makes the hard sayings of Christ especially difficult, that kind of context. And one of the questions, one of the Bible stories that Clement wrestles with is the story of the rich young ruler coming to Christ and Jesus saying, go sell all you have. And Clement wrestles with that story because... That account is nonsensical in a place like Alexandria, a place which is wealthy and sophisticated. It's nonsensical in a London or a New York. It's nonsensical amongst people who live in a place like London or New York because they want to be wealthy and they think they're sophisticated. To tell them to go and sell all they have and give it to the poor makes no sense. So should the text, should the command of Christ, go sell all you have and give it to the poor, should it be taken literally? Or is there another way to understand it? This is Clement's response. We must recognize that the Savior teaches his followers nothing in a merely human way. But all these things with divine and mystical wisdom and not understand his sayings in a fleshly sense, but with due inquiry and understanding, search out and learn the meaning hidden in them. What is the hidden meaning in the instruction of Christ? He bade the man give up the destructions of business, cling to the one thing and attend closely to the grace of him who gives eternal life. Clement said, you don't actually have to give your stuff away. You just need to cling to Christ. But what about the command? Because Jesus did actually tell the dude to give all his stuff away. It does not bid him, as some take it in an offhand manner, cast away the property he has and give up his wealth. 
but it bids him banish from his soul his opinions concerning wealth, the feeling for it, the excessive desire, the passionate and diseased excitement concerning it, the cares, the thorns of earthly life which choke the seed of true life. How do you respond to the instruction of Christ? You respond to it philosophically. You make sense to it in the context of the culture of an Alexandria, a wealthy, sophisticated place where the enemies of the faith think that it's only fit for slaves and children. That's how you respond. You respond to the culture. Essentially, you can have your cake and eat it. Do you say that in the States? Is that an American idiom or just a British one? You have your cake and you eat it. You keep hold of your loot and you keep hold of Jesus, is what Clement says. But the thing is, the command was literal. Take what you have, sell it, and give to the poor. Next dude, Tertullian. Same kind of time as Clement. Different approach. To ethics, his most famous phrase is, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? Don't try and reconcile Greek philosophy and culture with Christianity. What concord is there between the academy and the church? What agreement can there be between the academic mainstream, what is taught in the universities and the church of Jesus Christ? With our faith, we desire no further belief. Tertullian, unlike Clement, was much more literalistic. We do what the text says. We don't try and philosophize. We don't try and reconcile these competing demands. No, we're going to stand distinct. So there's a question there. Do we lead like Clement or do we lead like Tertullian? In contemporary terms, who's more biblically faithful? Is it Tim Keller or is it Shane Claiborne and the Red Letter Christians? Who is more biblically faithful? Now, in the event, Clement, in a sense, won. And what happened from about AD 600 is we had the rise of what we called Christendom, where across Europe was this assumption of a Christian culture. And at any point from about 600 AD up until about 200 years ago, most Europeans, most Westerners, would have shared common assumptions on most ethical issues. Questions about marriage, sexuality, how you do life. Most Europeans, most Westerners would have had shared assumptions about how you handle those things, but that is not the case now. There isn't that shared assumption in Western society. So what shifted? What happened? How did that change? Now, I'm going to give you a massively simplified potted history. If there's any professional philosophers or historians or sociologists, I apologize. Um, I just want to talk very quickly through four key figures with fantastic facial hair. Uh, before we get there, just a good recommend, sorry. Go, go to this book. Um, I was asked to recommend some books. Uh, if you want to get, understand more about how our culture shifted and why we're where we are, this book, A Brief History of Thought by Luke Ferry, is fantastic. Now, he's, let me tell you some things about him. He's French, he's a philosopher, and he's an atheist but it's still a great book. I'd recommend it. Don't let that put you off. Helpful book. Now, on to the dudes with the beards. Some of them look like they come from North Carolina. First one, Marx. Marx was not interested in moral issues, and he said communists preach no morality, no morality at all. And you might think here in the States especially, well, we hey, we've never been into communism. What's Marx going to do with us? Marx has affected how people think, at the top, in academia, that is filtered through into wider culture, it's there. It's there. 
No direct interest in moral issues. Marx saw morals as the way the ruling class controlled the proletariat. The way that the rulers keep the working class under the heel is by imposing morality upon them. And so Marx saw Christian morality as weak and cringing. Christian morality actually was part of the problem. Christian morality kept the workers down and the rulers in their place. That's what Christendom looked like. And the proletariat, says Marx, needs to be courageous and revolutionary. They need to throw off their chains. So Marx is an atheist because he believes in the supremacy of human freedom and the supremacy of human consciousness. Why do people believe in God then? Marx says God is simply a projection of human consciousness on the heavens. We have created God in our own image. And what we need to do is replace God with materialism. Get rid of God, get rid of Christian morality, and just get hold of the stuff. And once the workers have got hold of the stuff, society will be just and equal and fair as it should be. Next dude, Nietzsche. Nietzsche is different from Marx. He engages directly with moral issues. He's interested in morals. And he says that morals, rather than morals being something the rulers have imposed upon the workers to keep them in their place, it, Mark, Nietzsche sees it the other way around. Morals are, are about how the weak overcome the powerful. What happens, Nietzsche says, is that weakness gets disguised as virtue. Humility, prudence, altruism, self-denial, apparently good virtues, they actually become a means by which the weak get control of the strong. It becomes an exercise of power because guilt is imposed upon the strong, upon the free, and they're made to conform. And Nietzsche used this term resentiment, which is an important term. It's this perception of disadvantage or mistreatment which causes a group to impose morality on those who they see as disadvantaging or mistreating them, which then controls that other group. Morals become a means of control. Another book to recommend, James Davison Hunter, came out a few years ago, a very significant book, To Change the World. He describes what resentment looks like. Stay with me. It's a chunky quote, but stay with me. He says, The sense of injury is key. Over time, the perceived injustice becomes central to the person's and the group's identity. Understanding themselves to be victimized is not a passive acknowledgement, but a belief that can be cultivated. Accounts of atrocity become a crucial subplot of the narrative, evidence that reinforces a sense that they have been or will be wronged or victimized. Cultivating the fear of further injury becomes a strategy for generating solidarity within the group and mobilizing the group to action. It is often useful at such times to exaggerate or magnify the threat. The injury or threat thereof is so central to the identity and dynamics of the group that to give it up is to give up a critical part of whom they understand themselves to be. Thus, instead of letting go, the sense of injury continues to get deeper. In this logic, it is only natural that wrongs need to be righted, and so it is then that the injury, real or perceived, leads the aggrieved to accuse, blame, vilify, and then seek revenge on those whom they see as responsible. The adversary has to be shown for who they are, exposed for their corruption and put in their place. Resentment then is expressed as a discourse of negation, the condemnation, denigration of enemies in the effort to subjugate and dominate those who are culpable. Now, 
Stick with me, it's a chunky quote, stick with me. The place where we probably see that most clearly today is in some of the narratives told by some of the LGBT community. I want to be careful in saying that, not generalise, but so I'm qualifying it, but we see it there. Let me give you this example about some two things that happened this year. In March of this year, 69 Christians were killed in a bomb attack in Lahore. Sorry, it's a bit fuzzy on the, on the picture. These are two screenshots from the BBC website, which is the dominant news source in the UK, completely dominant. And the headline in the BBC article about the Pakistan explosion is Pakistan explosion leaves many dead at Lahore Park. And then the, in the type, which isn't so clear, it talks about many were killed, including women and children. The BBC were embarrassed, it felt to me, to acknowledge the fact that these were Christians. Now, it did appear in the reports, but it appeared lower down, and it appeared almost in embarrassed tones. And it was about other people were killed as well. There was a bomb in Lahore, 69 people were killed. By the way, they were Christians. A few months later, in Orlando, 49 gay people were killed in that appalling attack on the nightclub. A very, very different media response. Orlando shooting latest attack on LGBT community. The narrative is told, it's not just individuals, it's not just people like it is in Lahore. No, this is an attack upon the LGBT community. Our hurt, our injury has been further injured. And what that does is to further reinforce the group identity and further reinforce the narrative against those who are seen as oppressors. So those who would resist things which are being communicated from the LGBT narrative are themselves seen as part of the same problem. They are the same as the bomber, same as the shooter, because we are an injured people. And we need to then turn that around and control those who would seek to injure us. That's Nietzsche. Freud. Freud sees religion as an illusion. Why do people believe in illusion? People believe in illusion because... Living in a civilised society imposes a cost upon us. There's all kinds of things I'd want to do, which I can't do, because if I did them, civilization would unravel. You just can't go out and do the stuff you want to do. You have to control your desires to live in a civilised society. And also, we all have injuries of nature and fate we have to bear. Bad stuff happens to us. So how do you handle that? How do you handle the fact that you can't do everything you want to do and bad stuff happens to you? What do you do? Well, you get into wish fulfilment. You get into the desire for consolation which religion provides. And so Freud saw faith as infantile. He saw it as a, as a childish desire for a father figure. I'm hurting. I need someone to help. Oh, there's a God who can help me. That's how Freud saw it. And his hope was that Rational intellect would triumph over, as he put it, the neurotic relics of religion. That's Freud. And then there was Darwin. And Darwin really stands, out of all these guys, he stands supreme and unchallenged in the academic world. He provided a system which means we don't need God at all. Don't need God at all in a Darwinian world. You can have a story, you have a narrative of how everything is and how everything got to be without any reference to God whatsoever. And so morality is whatever you want morality to be. Now, why am I telling you this? Why am I talking about four dead guys with facial hair? Why am I talking about Marx and Nietzsche and Freud and, and Darwin? The reason I'm talking about it is because, and I've got through this even quicker than I thought I would. Amazing. I'm telling you this because the contemporary West is Marx Freudian Darnitian. 
That's what we are. And Josh kind of referenced this in the previous section when he talks about how people think and how people feel and how people react. This is, this is how it looks. There should be a slide for this one. This is how we in the West think. And I know there are differences. I know that somebody in London probably thinks different from someone in Moorhead City. There are cultural differences between us. But generally, across the West, this is how we think. I am the product of evolution. Morality is relative. No one else could impose morality upon me, but I can use identity politics to get my way. I can do what I like with whoever I like. Except, and this is the, about the one last remaining taboo, I can't force sex on somebody who doesn't want it. That's one taboo that stands. And when I've done all that and felt all that and it's not working out so well, therapy can help me. That's the way the contemporary Western mind thinks. Thinks like Darwin. Why are we, what are we? Well, we're just lumps of stuff. There's a, a term I... Let me throw it out because we're here and we're friends. It's a term I love. Ontological reductionism. Ontology, how things develop, how they got to where they are. Reductionism, how you break it down. Darwin says, what we are, human beings are just lumps of stuff. And a dog is a lump of stuff. And a rat is a lump of stuff. And a worm is a lot of stuff. And a, a rock is a lump of stuff. And you just break it down. And sometimes it forms a rock. And sometimes it forms a worm. And sometimes it forms a dog. And sometimes it forms a man. And that's what we think, even, even in America, where most people would say they still believe in a literal creation, that is deep in our cultural psyche. We're just stuff. We're just stuff. Morality is relative. I choose my way, you choose your way. That's fine, that's fine. You do what you like, I'll do what I like, it doesn't matter. But, but if I don't like what you're doing, then I will use identity politics to get my way. I will find my tribe. Resentment is real. We will impose morality on you somehow. And if you don't, See what I'm trying to say, just go and look on Twitter. Twitter reveals the Marx, Freudian, Darnitian way of thought. Morality is relative. Identity politics. I'll do what I like. Therapy can help me. And so the, the leadership question is this, because this talk is about leadership in the midst of seismic ethical shifts. The leadership question is this. How do you lead a Marx-Freudian-Darnitian? How do you lead people like that? And if we're going to answer that question, we need to get circled back to where I began, which is to think about how Christian is our ethics, how Christian is our counsel, how Christian is our teaching, how Christian is our leadership, to what extent are we accommodating the world in which we live and to what extent do we need to resist the world in which we live? To what extent do we need to be more like Clement and to what extent do we need to be more like Tertullian? And to bring you right back to that example with which I began, what do you do about the couple who turn up in your church who were married but both got divorced because they had an affair? And when they had an affair, she was a Christian, but he wasn't. And since they had the affair, he's become a Christian. And now they want to get married, and they want you to do it. What do you do in that kind of Marx, Freudian, Dar, Nietzschean world? What does it mean to be a Christian pastor, to be a Christian leader? And like I said, a whole bunch of questions, not many answers. What I'd like us to do, I'd just, I'd just like to pray, and then... Um, 
what I'd like to do is, is to turn to one another in rows and just ask that question. How do I lead? How Christian is my leadership? How Christian is my thought? What would I do in that example of that couple who turn up at church? Would I marry them? Would I not? Why? Why not? What does the Bible demand? Should I be more like Clement? Should I be more like Italian? Where do I sit? And what are the challenges of my culture in my town? Let's pray. Jesus, I do pray for us. I pray as we seek to plant churches and strengthen churches in a, in a culture where uh, everything is shifting so fast. Things are just moving rapidly. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to hold on to truth in you, to have some solid ground on which we stand. And Lord, not just to get swept along by the culture in which we are. And I pray that we wouldn't just build really cool churches uh, which aren't actually lights on a hill. I pray also, Jesus, that you keep us from making that other mistake of retreating to a bunker and trying to survive Armageddon, ethical Armageddon, as it explodes around us. Give us the grace to keep engaging, keep loving, keep winning, keep drawing, keep talking. And I pray for us ourselves, where we ourselves are Marx, Freud, and Darnitians, and we don't even know it. Lord, you expose in our own hearts where we need to be conformed more to the likeness of your Son, where we need to know more thoroughly the story of, of sin and brokenness, and redemption, and resurrection, and discipleship. I pray you'd help us in these things, King Jesus. Amen.